Hey, it's your host, Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, which explores our paths to collective healing, ecological regeneration, and true abundance and wellness for all. As a community-powered show made possible by listeners like you, we do need your direct support to be able to continue the show and keep exploring a lot of perspectives and topics often sidelined by mainstream media. So if you value these conversations, you can reciprocate support for us starting from a gift of $2 at greendreamer.com support. And if you want the references and takeaways from each episode sent to you, you can sign up to our weekly newsletter at greendreamer.com. And for now, on to today's episode, where we're speaking with Dr. Melanie Yazzie. If we're going to have any type of change, it's going to come from movements, it's going to come from people power, it's not going to come from politicians. Like the politicians will respond because we've built power, and that's just the way that you fuel the engine of history through movement building. Dr. Yazzie is a citizen of the Navajo Nation who grew up in the border towns that border the Navajo Nation and Arizona. She is Assistant Professor of Native American Studies and American Studies at the University of New Mexico, and she specializes in Navajo and American Indian history, political ecology, indigenous feminist and queer studies, and theories of policing and the state. She also organizes with the Red Nation, a grassroots native-run organization committed to indigenous liberation, and she's the author of Red Nation Rising, which investigates the violent dynamics of border towns. We begin here as Dr. Yazi shares about the beginnings of how she came to embody and focus on native politics. You know, I didn't know it at the time when I was a child, or even when I was a teenager, I actually didn't come to native politics or indigenous politics or kind of choosing that as something I was going to specialize in for my my life's work, really, um, as a professor, but also as an activist and a revolutionary. You know, I didn't know that even when I was in high school, all the way up until college, I would say. What I did understand, though, was injustice. I did understand inequality. I did understand suffering. And I didn't always know exactly why those things existed, but I knew that only certain people experienced them more, right, than others. Mm. I knew that my Native relatives experienced it more than other people, particularly white folks around me. Uh, my mother is actually not Native. She's white. She She's originally from Pennsylvania. And my mom is an interesting person. She was very political. My mom actually participated in the anti-war movement. Uh, she lived in the Bay Area in the 60s and the early 70s. She organized with the United Farm Workers and also the American Indian Movement. And I remember even as a child um, in our little tiny house in Kingman, Arizona, which is where I grew up until I was, I think, in first grade before we moved to Colorado. But, you know, she would always watch the news. And she was like glued to the news all the time, or she would always be reading the newspaper, or she had subscriptions to like political magazines like The Nation or Harper's. I was nine years old. It was what it was 1991 when the US invaded Iraq. I just remember watching the bombs over Baghdad. And I remember just thinking like about the people who were on the ground and what they must be experiencing because of that. And again, I didn't know anything about. The U.S. war machine, you know, or U.S. imperialism or the history of U.S. imperialism in relationship to the conquering of indigenous nations in the, the 18th and the 19th century in the United States, how the United States was born out of imperial warfare and bloodshed against indigenous people and indigenous nations. I didn't know any of that stuff at that time. All I knew was that it was wrong. <laughs> like I, And so I think when I became a teenager and went to college and started to really learn more about things like racism or like colonialism or capitalism, it wasn't until I was in graduate school in my late 20s that I really learned what feminism was. You know, I have a long, mm. I've had a long journey into this work <laughs> and uh, I started to connect the dots and to realize that the inequality and the suffering and that feeling, that gut feeling I had that war was wrong or that the suffering and discrimination against my Navajo relatives was wrong, had a name <laughs> and that it came from structures of power. And once I realized that, 
that's when I became much more politicized and radicalized, really in my late 20s into my early 30s. I, I turn 40 next month. Around the time that this comes out, I will be turning 40, the week of no thanks, no giving. So I kind of think of my like trajectory into this life through the decades you know, of my childhood into my adulthood. And so I did, I did not decide to do Native American studies or become a historian of my own people, Navajo people, or to become a historian of social and political movements, or myself to become an activist, right? Or somebody who is a social and political actor within those movements until I would say my early 30s. Something that stood out for me from a past panel that you spoke on is how you show up as an intellectual, mm. juxtaposing a difference between being a revolutionary and intellectual versus, as you had named before, a bourgeois intellectual employed <laughs> in the academy. Yep. And it sounds like from your background as well that a lot of your critical learnings didn't necessarily come through formal educational institutions. So can you elaborate more on this and how it's informed or instructed the ways that you work within and outside of academia? Yeah, absolutely. Love this topic. <laughs> I to say. <laughs> I mean, oh, there's so much to unpack. I mean, I have... I have a bourgeois education. You know, I have an elite education. I went to a private liberal arts college called Grinnell College, which at the time had the largest private endowment of any college in the world, <laughs> possibly the nation. Mm. You know, I got a full ride package to that particular college. I received my master's degree from Yale University. And I mean, Yale like owns the world, like Harvard and Princeton, right? Those are <laughs> Ivy League institutions. UNM, the University of New Mexico, not really a bourgeois institution. It's kind of like a rickety public <laughs> research one institution in one of the poorest states in the entire country. And I made that choice for a reason to come to this place. I, I currently still live in Albuquerque, to receive my PhD, to bring me closer to my people, to be able to work with indigenous folks on the ground. And it really was, was right, it was about four years after I started my PhD that Nick Estes and I and a few other folks in Albuquerque co-founded the Red Nation, which is this like revolutionary, very action-based grassroots organization that was founded in Albuquerque. And that happened when I was a graduate student, a PhD student here at UNM. And so even though I come from that kind of background I didn't really become a real thinker, like somebody who had strong analysis, somebody who had conviction until I was at UNM, honestly. And honestly, until we started to do organizing on the ground, kind of boots on the ground organizing with the Red Nation. And I think that this is because, you know, you're taught in the academy, um, especially places like Grinnell or Yale, to be hyper-individualist, right? To be very careerist, to think about getting tenure, to think about how you can rise through the ranks of the institution. And that's fine. You know, I know a lot of people who do that, a lot of people I respect deeply who do that, but you end up spending your life kind of playing the game within this institution. And then what also ends up happening is if, if you have, if you're a political person, you know, if you're somebody who wants to enact or, or inspire change, you often get hamstrung by the institution in the sense that you think that you, you're always battling the institution and you're trying to change the institution itself. And I learned from the organizing, I learned from just like doing political work and intellectual work completely outside of the academy that, you know, the academy is, I mean, it is a bourgeois institution and the, the field of education, you know, education is a battleground. It's, it's where the war of ideas plays out. It's why the right right now in the United States is really trying to crack down on public education, on university campuses, right? I'm in Florida, trying to surveil teachers who might be teaching ethnic studies, the quote unquote liberal content that they're so afraid of. So education, you know, universities are important places where politics do matter. And so when you're in the classroom and sometimes when you're engaging and, and, and fighting to save a department, you know, a department like Native American studies, for example, that that is important political work. But... <laughs> The political work that happens outside of the institution, for me, is so much more rewarding. And it's intellectually rich because when you're engaged in action-based organizing with other people, especially with other people who come from, you know, colonized or oppressed backgrounds, there's nothing like that feeling. It's like you have true self-determination and freedom when you're doing that kind of work. And to make history 
through doing that work. That's what you're actually doing. You're not just reflecting on history. You're not a commentator, which is often what scholars are. You're a commentator on history. You're actually, like I said, a social actor within that history making. And to be an actor within that gives you, you're not doing an ethnography. <laughs> you know, you're not conducting interviews with people. Your whole heart and soul is in the work. And there's nothing better like in terms of understanding what what that history actually is and what those aspirations actually look like than to be immersed in it and to be a part of it. And so for me, it's a very dialectical relationship between the action-based organizing and then the reflection. And the reflection, i.e. the writing, the teaching, on the stuff that I do as, as a professor who's employed by the academy, I now see that that labor must directly feed and always be feeding and nourishing the movements themselves, movements for decolonization, right? Movements against imperialism, movements for climate justice. And I'm always encouraging my students, you know, to think that way as well, that you're not just creating like think pieces or thought experiments, right? But that your work is deeply grounded in the material conditions of the struggle for liberation itself. And so the activist work outside of the academy taught me how to do that. And I think it's more, you know, it's less about being a public intellectual. I think sometimes people like the term scholar activist. For me, it's really just like when you produce knowledge as a revolutionary, the way you do it, the audience, the reason you do it is much different than if you're simply a scholar, you know, who's trying to get tenure in an institution. Mm. I want tenure. <laughs> you know, I want some job <laughs> security. I want health insurance like everybody else. I love working with Native students. I have deep respect for the scholars that have mentored me and who I am in conversation with. The thing is that almost all of them, especially the Native ones, they also do a great deal of community work outside of the institution and are constantly trying to create more space within the institution for the types of things I'm describing, right? The types of experiences, the type of knowledge and the type of movements. And so that's just a little bit of kind of what the organizing has taught me. I am every day, and I, I've said this publicly many times when people are like, wow, like you left Yale to go to the University of New Mexico. <laughs> like, Why mm -hmm. would you do that? Because I did, I got into the PhD program at Yale and really considered staying. And every time someone asked me that, I'm like, it was the best decision I ever made. It was one of the best decisions I've ever made in my entire life because it has led me to this place where I just understand things. I have a di completely different sense of who I am as an intellectual and as an educator than I could ever have had if I had stayed in those institutions and risen through the ranks of power in that way. And that's just the truth. So that's a little bit about my journey and why why I do what I do. And I'm not the only person who does it. And I've learned a great deal from other people who've, you know, paved the way for me. Right. And just what does all of this tell us about how we conceptualize credibility, mm. um, how we value different educational degrees or different forms of education? And it's interesting that there's often this presumption that education is neutral or it should be neutral and unbiased. But I actually don't even know if any form of neutrality in terms of like human storytelling and education is even possible. That is such a BS narrative <laughs> that, <laughs> that American historians, I'm talking about mostly white settler American historians who have really just like taken up all of the space, all of the oxygen in writings about the history of slavery or the history of genocide against <laughs> native people both within the academy and publicly, right? The popular public histories um, or in museums, which also narrate history. And Elizabeth Cooklin, again, right? The Dakota scholar that I mentioned earlier, who's one of the founders of Native American or American Indian studies in the United States. You know, she's famously written. She's like, there are no, no two sides to this story. She's like, there are no two sides to a story of conquest and a story of genocide and colonialism. And there's that, right, that historical move that the U.S. is always, the U.S. and its handmaidens, you know, it's its elite trained historians who are handmaidens often to the colonial enterprise that is the United States, that they like to say like, well, we need to be objective, right? To be an intellectual, to be somebody who produces history and writes history means we need to tell both sides, you know, because it's there's always two sides to this story. And there are no two sides to a story of colonialism. If you're going to try to two-side 
a history of genocide and colonialism, then you're going to whitewash that history. That's just what's going to happen. Because in a colonial relationship, one of those entities, the colonizer, has the monopoly on power. They have the monopoly on violence, right? And that's that's essentially what colonialism describes. And the United States government is our colonial occupier. As indigenous people and as indigenous nations, they are the colonizer. And they go to great lengths, right, to whitewash the history of colonialism. And it's not just history. It's an ongoing reality. It's an ongoing relation. The only way that colonialism would end, like an actual decolonization would happen, one thing that would have to happen is that indigenous nations would actually have true independence. (laughs) We don't have true independence. We're just subsumed under the weird kind of domestic law that frames federal Indian policy and our relationship with the United States. And we're expected, you know, at every turn, whether it's our membership determinations or how we want to allocate our resources, we constantly have to get permission you know, from the United States government because they're the colonizer. And so when you think about education, and this is like the very understanding of really the, the beating heart of the United States, like what is America really? Last year we found out that America is just like deeply racist, white supremacist, and profoundly anti-Black, right? The Black Lives Matter uprising after George Floyd was murdered was really like a revolution in how we think about and how we understand what the project of America is, the 1619 project, right, out of the New York Times. And there's incredible backlash when you challenge these narratives, these received truths about what America is, that it's the purveyor of democracy around the world and that it's the greatest democracy on earth. We're the beacon on the hill. This is the land of freedom and true equality. So the the ideas, right, the idea and the imaginary that really builds the United States and that creates this narrative, right, of what the United States is or what an American is, then when you challenge that, when you really like peel back those layers and you're like, whoa, not only is the United States founded on these like pillars of genocide (laughs) and slavery, but in fact, inequality and the legacies and the ongoing practices of anti-Black racism, for example, or settler colonialism, are still as strong as they were 200 years ago. They've just morphed into different technologies and different ways of making sure that that power and that relationship of domination and subordination remains intact. And that's partly, we saw a rupture in the America is great narrative, make America great again (laughs) narrative last year with the uprising. And every time you see indigenous uprisings, whether it's at Standing Rock or what's going on at line three or, you know, just two, three days ago is Indigenous Peoples Day. When you see those kinds of ruptures, the toppling of statues, these monuments, right, to the glory of America, there's a rupture in that triumphalist narrative that the United States likes to tell itself. And those ruptures are really important. They're beautiful and they're powerful. And they have the capacity to shift, to shift how we think. And at the end of the day, is an education about thinking I think from like a perspective of statecraft, education is about indoctrination, (laughs) indoctrinating people from a very early age into believing this narrative about who they are as Americans or about the history of the United States. But every time there's a protest, it's pedagogical. There's education happening in a protest. When you see a protest sign, when you see a confrontation with police or with right-wing militia, you know, are fascists, that there is an educational moment where there are narratives and that there are entire social orders colliding with one another. And that it is not, in fact, about indoctrination, but that we understand that knowledge is produced through conflict and through encounter. And I always encourage my students, even when we're in kind of like the the very vanilla, chill environment of a classroom, (laughs) you know, and we're talking about books and ideas, I tell them, you know, I don't want you to I don't want you to just receive what I'm telling you. I want you to think for yourself. I want you to question the things that you're told are normal. The things that you're told are the are the received truths and then just live your life according to those rules. I'm like I want you to challenge that and I want you to be able to think independently of that. And that's what I I value critical thinking. I use kind of Paulo Freire's model. A lot I have my students read his work a lot cuz I think he he did incredible work in this regard. But for me, 
that's what education is. And it doesn't just happen in a classroom, right? It's it, Education and knowledge is produced everywhere, everywhere on the streets, in the classroom, in our homes. And I encourage my students to understand education in that way. And that it's okay to have, you know, something you're told in the academy is that you shouldn't be political because then you won't get tenure. You know, you can't be too much of a rabble rouser. And I completely reject that. And you know what? I've been perfectly fine in the academy being like an unapologetic, loudmouth rabble rouser. <laughs> and credibility. I, I think I have credibility because I like just refuse. I refuse to be silent. And I think people respect me. I'm sure a lot of people don't like me. <laughs> think that, but I don't really care. Like, what's the point? The the planet is dying. (laughs) Like, like, now is not the time to be silent and to just be like holding our breath until we get tenure. That's absurd. Like, go get, go do the work. Go go get the work done. Like, we have like 30 years. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry, I'm getting all riled up. No, I really resonate with your approach and presence and way of being because on this podcast, we're all about critical thinking and picking everything apart, deconstructing all the quote unquote solutions that are being pushed and really challenging presumptions and norms and what has been accepted as the way that things must be. So I feel really aligned here. And you mentioned that injustice or structures of injustice have really been pretty much the same in the past centuries and decades. They have just been reiterated in different forms. And this reminds me of these different theories of change, which I recognize can be controversial. So I've interviewed both movement leaders who advocate for people to get involved in electoral politics, to vote for politicians with more aligned values, and also a lot of leaders who do not engage in electoral politics as a form of protest, or at least don't really spend much effort on it because it's not possible to vote for a systemic overhaul to the degree they feel is necessary to address our eco-social crises. And from the Red Deal statement, Mm. politicians can't do what mass movements can I presume that your politics lean towards the latter, which (laughs) can be viewed as doom and gloom for some people. Although I think the cynicism in improving the current system incrementally may be instructive because that hopelessness might be what opens our eyes to other ways to move forward that most people just aren't taught about, again, in formal educational institutions. So I would love for you to speak more to your understanding of what reforms has actually meant and their limitations in allowing for the collective transformations that many are yearning for. Great question. Yeah, I mean, talking about received truths, right? And and kind of the go-to, when you become somebody who's like, I want to kind of move out of the space that I'm in and I want to become more engaged in organizing or activism or like I want to create change and then what is available? What are the models, right? The theory of change or the models of change that are most readily available, especially in the United States? Well, nonprofits, (laughs) first of all, tried, tried my hardest in my 20s in a nonprofit, got super disgusted. (laughs) And alienated and disillusioned um, and then went to graduate school because I felt like what I was seeing, I didn't entirely understand. But again, I had this feeling that it was wrong. So nonprofits are usually the first thing that many of us turn to. And I think electoral politics are kind of like this uh, thinking that change at the national, the federal or the governmental level is really what we should be focusing all of our effort on and putting our energies into. So getting elected to Congress, for example, or or backing a candidate, I definitely wanted to do that and participated in a lot of that kind of politicking when I was in my 20s and even into my early 30s. Because I think that those are the models generally that are available to you. For Indigenous people, there's a third model, a model for change or a theory of change that has really grown in prominence I would say since red power kind of calmed down in the neoliberal era, and that's kind of like a return to culture. So traditional farming or engaging in cultural practices, kind of like finding your way back to your identity or a relationship with the land. And so those three options, at least for indigenous people who are kind of like searching for what model of change makes the most sense for them, those are the three most prevalent. I would say nonprofits, electoral politics, and return to culture or return to tradition. And I don't necessarily reject the third one because I think that's actually incredibly important to the work we do as the Red Nation. 
But there is something, you use the word cynicism, there is something incredibly cynical about thinking that those are your only options. It's very sad to me when I see folks choose something because they don't think that they can just do it themselves, for example. No one gave us permission to start the Red Nation. We just did it. And something that I've learned from Indigenous feminists, particularly like Dr. Jennifer Nez Dennett-Dale, my, my heroic mentor, is that you don't need to ask permission to do what's right. And that just because something doesn't exist, you know, for you to participate in doesn't mean you can't create that. And that there might be a need for the thing that you're doing for a different model for how to organize for change and revolution and liberation. And the thing is, is like, we did that with the Red Nation and it turns out it really resonated with a lot of people. And it continues to resonate with a lot of people as an alternative, right, to the things that are on offer in basically the liberal framework that really dictates and dominates kind of like what we think of as the political horizon for social and economic change um, or for like social and economic justice in this country. And so in the Red Deal, which I think is a really, it's a good example of kind of where the Red Nation is at and our theory of organizing and our theory of change you, you stated earlier, yes, one of the principles, there are four principles to the Red Deal, and one is politicians can't do what only mass movements can do. And we say this first from experience. So at a smaller scale, like city and statewide, the Red Nation, like I said, we don't ask for permission to be indigenous in our own homelands. We don't ask for permission to organize in the ways that make sense to us to help our people and to unapologetically aspire for total liberation and decolonization for ourselves and for all life on this planet. That when we just act in this way, and when we have that power, and we recognize our power to do this, we make pretty remarkable change, and politicians actually respond to us. And this is what happens when you build really vibrant, successful movements. They, the power, you are building power. It's okay to build power. I think there's also this tendency in the United States, especially on the left, where like having power, building power is like counter-revolutionary. And I think that's just silly because, again, you know, the colonizer has the monopoly on power. The ruling class quite literally owns the planet. <laughs> if ever mm. there was a monopoly on power, they have the power. And we have power, too. And why not build the base from that, that foundation of power? Because when we have power the ruling class actually has to respond to us because they recognize that we have power and they respond in multiple ways. They try to like assuage us, you know, they try to throw money at the situation. They try to apologize and think everything is okay. They try to co-opt, <laughs> you know, sometimes they beat us. Sometimes they put us in jail or prison. You know, they respond in various ways to the power that we're building, but mostly they're just trying to diminish it and to destroy it because they know that the power that we're building in movements means their demise, really, because to have a monopoly on power in the particular way that it exists today requires incredible violence. It requires incredible inequality and remarkable suffering of most of the planet's human population, especially in the global south. And pretty much all life on this planet has been, has been harnessed for this larger hoarding of capital, power, wealth, and life, also called capitalism but by a very small percentage of the world's population, most of whom are white men. And so then this is just true historically. And so the, when movements, when you can actually build a movement, it means you're building power and that that power really means something. And when the state is responding to you or when the ruling class is responding to you, however they do, I listed the different ways that we've experienced that response it's a really good sign because it means they recognize your power <laughs> and they feel threatened. <laughs> and even though it's scary, it's scary. It's also really good because you're like, yeah, we got power. <laughs> you know. And I don't feel that same sense of empowerment when I like vote for Joe Biden <laughs> you know, or even like necessarily having Deb Holland. You know, as the head of the Secretary of Interior, I support her as an Indigenous woman in a colonial government. I'm sure it's like an incredibly difficult job. She's inheriting an entire legacy of colonial administration that, you know, I'm sure is like keeps her up at night just thinking about having to participate in that system. But yeah, we call it non-reformist reform in the Red Nation, where it's like, 
if we're going to have any type of change, it's going to come from movements. It's going to come from people power. It's not going to come from politicians. Like the politicians will respond because we've built power. And that's just the way that you fuel the engine of history through movement building. I mean, I voted for Deb Holland. She represents my, when she was in Congress, um, she represents my district here in Bernalillo County and Albuquerque. So it's not like I don't vote as an act of protest. I just don't see it really at all. <laughs> it's like an engine for change. It's a thing I do in five minutes on one day, you know, every two or five, two or four years. And then 364, 365, <laughs> the rest of my life, I'm pretty much just like out there organizing because I think that's where the real change lives. So it seems like in order to actually move the needle, things have to be done to shake up the existing powers. And like you said, the things that get them to respond and force them to respond. On this note, another thing that really stood out to me is that the Red Nation really holds an internationalist lens. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask you why it's been so critical for the Red Nation and its program for Indigenous liberation to center a global perspective and to tether the Indigenous struggles within the U.S. with the movements rising up against U.S. imperialism mm -hmm. in other parts of the globe beyond the borders. Yeah, internationalism is a centerpiece to how we understand how we get to decolonization, self-determination, and liberation. And for, for me, it started with Palestine. Actually, the question of Palestine, this became something very important about a decade ago in North American-based Indigenous studies or American Indian or Native American studies. And I went to Palestine. Um, I went to the West Bank and 48 for about two weeks um, in the spring of 2011 through a, a program sponsored by the Departments of American Studies and Anthropology at UNM. And I learned a great deal about resistance and about settler colonialism and about decolonization in Palestine. And from that point forward, understood. I think Palestine taught me, and many of our comrades now in the Red Nation have gone to Palestine. I think there are maybe eight or nine of us that have gone on various delegations. And what Palestine has taught me and what it's taught all of us in the Red Nation, this was the beginning of the international work we've now expanded significantly, is that we cannot achieve self-determination as indigenous nations under colonial occupation by the United States without international solidarity. There was a long history of internationalism built into the American Indian movement and into Red Power into the First Nations version through the George Manuel of that type of internationalism that then resulted in the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. So there's a long history, and there's a long history of international cooperation between Indigenous nations. And what I'm talking about when I talk about international cooperation and solidarity, it is one that is lateral, right? We're in, interested in engaging in internationalism with other movements that have similar aspirations as we do with governments that have tried to build states in a post-revolutionary kind of context, places like Bolivia, for example, where we have some aligned political values because we know that building a strong anti-imperialist and anti-colonial bloc will be essential for everyone. We need a truly global movement, right, to tackle the global beast that is U.S. imperialism, but also global capitalism, and that we do this laterally with other colonized or formerly colonized um, nationalities, right, and movements. And the thing is, we have so much to learn, too. This is the other aspect of the internationalism. There's this weird kind of like exceptionalism and conceit <laughs> that I really hate in the United mm -hmm. States left, that somehow it's part of this like narrative like that I was talking about earlier, that somehow we're like, we're the best, you know, at yeah. everything. And we're not. We don't have a movement in the United States. We have uprisings. You know, we have relatively successful parties like the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America. But we are not great at building movements, especially in the neoliberal period. People in the global South are really good at building movements. If you have like one, two million people in a movement or a party, like that's something that's really powerful. You know, the Red Nation has like 25 people. <laughs> and even though we're, we're small but mighty, you know, in what we do, we're not a movement. And so 
We have so much to learn from people who've waved actual revolutions and who have really gone through the difficult, filled with contradictions and complexities and, you know, all kinds of things. But the, the process of actually building a revolutionary government, for example, or having to build a people's movement. So part of the reason why we, work, we engage in the international work, in addition to the lateral solidarity piece and the need for like a global anti-imperialist block and a force, is because we have so much to learn. You know, we have a lot of humility to exhibit to the rest of the world. And frankly, as people who are like citizens of U.S. empire, you know, I'm a reluctant American citizen as an indigenous person who is under colonial occupation by the United States. But uh, we owe it (laughs) to the rest of the world that is under the boot of U.S. imperialism, whether it's the war-making machine from the U.S. military, whether it's sanctions, right? All of the different ways in which the U.S. exerts its dominance and power across the world. We owe it to our indigenous relatives across the globe who are under that boot to do everything we can to organize here as well as abroad to to lift that, you know, it's just so they may breathe and they may live with some semblance of like humanity um, when they're constantly denied it. We are too, but we also understand our complex relationship to the rest of the world as people who are in the belly of the beast of U.S. empire. So this is, there's a lot more reasons why we do the international work, but it's been one of the most fulfilling and I would say groundbreaking things that the Red Nation has been involved in over the last, I would say, five years or so. And I really think it's going to continue to grow the international solidarity. And it's going to, you know, we're building power. We don't, what you're told as an indigenous person, or like even as a tribal leader, let's say the president of the Navajo Nation in the United States, is that the only foreign relationship we're allowed to have is with our colonial occupier. So it's always like, Joe Biden, you know, US government, you know, like help us, <laughs> you know, or like <laughs> we need to ask you for permission to do this thing. Or like, you're the only like nation state we're allowed to have a relationship with. Like I categorically reject that. No one needs to have a relationship with their colonial occupier. Turn your glance. Otherwise go build lateral relationships and international relationships with other entities and build power that way. And just refuse, just refuse the colonial relationship that we have just been ensnared in from, you know, the inception of the United States. And to these points, I want to emphasize that the Red Deal, as you've helped to outline, is not like the Green New Deal, which is something created for U.S. politicians to take on or vote for. And it's really a call and guidance for the people. So perhaps to highlight some ways that people are thinking outside the box and mobilizing beyond their existing political institutions, as you've named in a lot going on in South America, can you share more about some of these efforts that have really inspired you, perhaps some of the indigenous woman-led movements mm-hmm. for climate action and what they may have been able to accomplish? Yeah, so the Red the red Deal is very inspired by the Cochabamba Agreement from 2011, which was a decade ago, uh, the, the gathering of over 30,000 indigenous people in Bolivia, right, to, to draft this visionary pretty comprehensive plan for an indigenous-led, anti-imperialist and anti-capitalist approach to climate justice, right? Um, Notions of climate debt came out of that particular conference or gathering of people. And so I think it's called the People's Accord, actually, and the Cochabamba Agreement are like very related, but two separate documents. And we were really in conversation with that when we were drafting the Red Deal I mean, yeah, the Green New Deal was an inspiration, but if you read the Green New Deal, especially the AOC version that came out, I think it was in 2018, it's very sparse. You know, it it leaves a lot of room for interpretation. And the Red Deal isn't a riff on the Green New Deal. Indigenous people don't need to like riff off of like colonially produced things. (laughs) Like we have, we're the original, we have the original relationship with these lands that the United States claims as its own. We don't need to riff off of anybody. We riff off of ourselves. (laughs) this way. So I've heard people criticize the Red Deal in that regard. And I just reject that categorically as an indigenous person. And so we're very interested, right, in drawing from what are indigenous people in other places like Bolivia doing to really challenge the fundamental role of capitalism, right, and capitalism and pillaging the earth and pillaging its people 
and creating, you know, the need for empire and the need for imperial expansion to just literally eat the world, right, in order to produce profits and this remarkable, disgusting accumulation of wealth for this very small percentage of the world's population. You do not see in the United States at all, whether it's the Green New Deal or even other more like lefty progressive approaches to climate justice, like you do not see a lot of people talk about capitalism. (laughs) Frankly, a lot of the climate justice stuff is just green capitalism. If you're going to be thinking about alternatives and models for change and theories for change, and you can't like make capitalism kinder, that's like not, it's just not possible. Capitalism requires violence and mass inequality. That's literally the engine of what makes it tick. And so we must overturn that relationship with humanity and with the planet, you know, if we're going to have any hope of having a future. And so we in the Red Nation and me just as a person um, and also as an Indigenous woman are incredibly inspired by the leadership of Indigenous women in these movements. There's a reason why you have such strong conviction about protection and defense of water and land, the notion of how one treats relatives and all of one's relations, the enforcement of certain p- political and social orders that have traditionally you know, been vested in the authority that Indigenous women hold in our communities and our nations. And so those are the people who inspire us, um, the people we continue to look to for guidance, but also our partners, right, in this, this larger project, um, this larger movement, frankly, that we're trying to build. In my past interview with Dr. Mark Rifkin, he shared that you were the person to speak to about restoring kinship relations, reimagining governance with our more-than-human world, and the existence of treaties between Native peoples and the living nations they live in connection with as one big family. So as we look to the future and open ourselves up to more deprogramming, what are the ways that you've imagined political order and kinship in relation with the living world that goes beyond quote-unquote governance entailing this sort of institution outside of and above in the ways that nation states may have conceptualized governance? Yeah, I mean, it's a complete, to use a fancy word, an ontological shift, right? It's a way of being that I think is being revolutionized in the movements themselves. Again, right, history isn't just made or written by historians sitting in offices at Yale University. It's like history is being made and written by the actual actors who are making that history actively in a particular moment or a particular epoch. And so the movements themselves, I'm speaking of indigenous movements, um, especially the ones led by women and LGBTQ folks, they are writing the history and the different way of relating. And so when you're writing and making history, you're shifting. You're not just shifting ideas, you're shifting the way in which you are in the world. And something that I've learned actually from these indigenous women and from something like water is life, right? Which is this mantra that became much more popularized during the Nodapple uprising of 2016 and early 2017 um, up at Standing Rock in South Dakota, that water is life is essentially a shift in telling us you know, how we need to be good relatives, not just to each other, but to that, to our other than human relatives. And there's a larger shift politically that has been happening um, that relates to climate change, where, you know, actually our relationship with the earth, capitalism has its own relationship to the earth, uh, has like, I forgot who said that capitalism isn't just like a structure of power domination. It's a social relation, right? Capitalism is a way of relation. And that relation hinges upon violence. It hinges upon domination and subordination, right? It hinges upon remarkable mass inequality between different sectors of of life, not just human life, but all life on this planet, a hierarchy. And so when we think about indigenous kinship and relationality, that is coming from the front lines, that is especially being reinforced, and we're being reminded of what this looks like by by indigenous women who are leading these movements, that that social relation is premised on completely different values, right? It's premised upon care. It's premised upon reciprocity. It's premised upon respect. It's premised upon cooperation. And it's premised upon compassion, actually, so the, the values that would drive how we relate to each other and the way we relate to the world, you know, are obviously fundamentally different than the values that currently drive 
the, the hegemonic ordering of the world, which is ordered through the capitalist social relation of violence, domination, and subordination. And so for me, like, obviously that would be a type of governance, a shift in a type of governance, but it's also, it helps you to create political orders that aren't necessarily attached to the nation state form, which really only came into existence with the birth of liberalism, which is a whole other topic <laughs> that I think <laughs> a lot about, but it's not liberal. There's nothing liberal. There's no liberalism in that way of understanding how we organize ourselves socially, politically, culturally as a species, you know, as collectives, but that those collectives would look very different. And there are places around the world, uh, I think, that are doing this at a much smaller scale and places that are doing it at a larger scale. I think a lot of, I'll just take Bolivia again as an example. I think what the indigenous like Moss is doing in the indigenous movement there, they're just forced to conform to this nation state form, right? Because that's the dominant form in which you exert power, you know, in the current landscape globally of, of political organization. And that also because U.S. imperialism is so intense and the crackdown on populations that are deemed a threat or an enemy, right, to the interests of the United States, like it's hard not to constantly have to defend yourself against that. But like, what if U.S. imperialism wasn't a thing and indigenous people actually got to self-organize, you know, according to these values of kinship and relationality? What kind of political and social orders would arise from that? I think that the experiments that are happening within the movements themselves. I think of the camp actually at Standing Rock, Ruth, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who's this like remarkable thinker in the history and, and politics of abolition and ending mass incarceration in the United States. You know, she talked about Standing Rock as an abolition geography. And so how can we continue to create abolition geographies in the very way we constitute ourselves as we're building the movements, but also as like the alternative that we're trying to build with those movements? And really the basis of that is just imagining. Like it's important to imagine otherwise, to imagine a different way in which we organize ourselves and, and how the future might look. And that's part of the reason why I find just limiting ourselves to like nonprofits and electoral politics just so cynical and <laughs> a little boring because <laughs> there's yeah. no imagination in it. There's no imagination and if anything, we need imagination right now. We need imagination combined with hard work, you know, to make those things happen. Yeah, I really think that the dominant culture and formal educational institution that a lot of people have been raised in, they really stunt our imaginations in terms of what is possible. Mm -hmm. So it's it's really time to deprogram and unlearn a lot of those limitations and to think outside the box. And all of what you just said um, reminds me of what we talked about earlier in that education and history is not objective because like as the author of these histories or curriculum, what are their relations to the living world? How do they do they see the land as relative? Do they mm -hmm. view the land as property as yep. by default? What are their values and worldviews? So all of these deeper personal biases, for me at least, show that history, any sort of media content or education, like none of that can be objective and neutral and therefore factual because it's really dependent upon the ontology and the worldviews and deeper relations and values. So there's a lot more to unpack there, but yeah. um, I would love to wrap up. So <laughs> to break everything we discussed down into more immediate actions, because as we talked about, there are many limitations of working within the system based on existing structures. What are the few things that you might recommend people do in their communities and beyond to play their role in support of this collective composting of the behemoth of an exploitive system that we exist within today? Well, people need to act. First and foremost, that's, I mean, like I said, we have a very short timeline for climate change and I'm a very action-based person. <laughs> I like to go where the action is <laughs> and that's why I'm an organizer. And so people need to act like join the DSA chapter in your area, join an organization that's doing stuff and not just like Building a community garden is really beautiful and feeding people is revolutionary. Absolutely. That needs to be attached to building a larger movement and to building power. That's what I would say. People need to act. And you keep using this word deprogramming, which I really love. 
because actually education deprogrammed me. I think education programs most people, (laughs) especially Mm. as we're younger. And my trajectory through college and then higher education was about deprogramming. And then the education I received from the organizing was about deprogramming. So act and deprogram. (laughs) (laughs) I think podcasts are an incredible tool for deprogramming, but those are the two things that I would say. And maybe decenter yourself a little bit and think more about the collective and about the relationships. I think social media gets us really focused on ourselves. And the pandemic has made us, I think, has alienated us and made us feel incredibly isolated. And now is the the time to engage in relationships again with people because you can't just act on your own. Like no one needs a celebrity to lead a movement. We need people to lead a movement. And that's how you do it through relationality, through kinship and through action. And that's how you deprogram the planet, frankly. What's an impactful publication that you follow or a book that you've read? Leslie Marmon Silko's Almanac of the Dead changed my life. It's really long. It's crazy, but everyone should read it. It's like a path towards indigenous revolution. <laughs> mm. What are some personal mottos, mantras, or practices you engage with to stay grounded? I act with other people in a collective manner. And that I think is the greatest source of inspiration for me is the action and the work itself. And if anything, what makes you most hopeful right now? The Most of the stuff I talked about <laughs> in this interview, <laughs> it's indigenous women-led anti-imperialist and anti-climate, anti-capitalist, sorry, climate justice struggles that are happening everywhere across the world. Well, Green Dreamer, we are coming to a close, but to learn more and stay updated on Dr. Yazi's work with The Red Nation, you can head to theretnation.org. They also have an incredible podcast that I really recommend for more deprogramming. <laughs> but Dr. Yazi, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It's been an honor to have you here. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Believe that there is a different future than the the hellish reality that we currently live in. Believe in it and then act upon it to make it a reality. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To reciprocate support for our community-powered show starting from just $2, you can head to greendreamer.com slash support. Without a media network behind us, we also rely entirely on word of mouth so that our extensive archive of conversations can reach and inspire more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with loved ones or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps so much and we are so grateful. The song featured in this episode is The Suicide from Hometown, offered by Indigenous Cloud. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. 